Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. can have a seat. How are we doing this morning? 11 a.m.? Feeling good? Love that. Enthusiastic. Um, Hey, my name is Nathan. I'm just one of the guys on staff here at Christ Chapel College. That is uh, a bunch of members from our awesome worship team, and you see us a lot, um, which is both good and bad, but there's some people that you don't get to see a lot that I wish you did because I'm really grateful for them, and they're all up there, which what we call the nest. Their names are Francis, Nick, Charlie, and Alan. And I just want you to know that they help put the show on. They go unnoticed a lot of times. Um, so yeah. Oh yeah, you can clap. They definitely hate me for that. Yep. Francis is crawling right now. Um, anyways, we are going to jump into 2 Samuel uh, chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to 2 Samuel chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there's a ton sitting around the room on all these tables. Take one. You can use it now. You can take it home with you. It is our gift to you. We want you to have a Bible. Um, scripture will also be up on these screens, by the way. But before we jump in, while you're flipping open to there, let me tell you a little bit about me. I, Nathan Sanchez, am not a strong swimmer. Um, I actually, you know, I got better. I became a lifeguard at one point in my life, but one time when I tried out or whatever, you know, apply to be a lifeguard, whatever that means, I had to do an open water swim test, swimming a mile in a river. Half of it was upstream and it sucked and I failed. Um, so there's that. So I've gotten better. Um, any of you that are training to do an Ironman out there, like good luck, I respect you. Swimming a mile is hard work, but I've never been the most strong swimmer. Here's a story that I wanna share with you. When I was young, um, I have a couple older sisters, I um, had a backyard with a pool growing up, and so a lot of birthday parties happened in our our yard. Um, My sister, I don't remember how old we were. I just remember I was young. She was having a birthday party. She's older than me. All her friends were coming over, so that meant cute girls that were older than me were coming over to my house for a swim party. And so naturally, young Nathan is like, okay, I want to go, like, you know, be friends with some of them or whatever. So I go to the backyard, and I'm like, doing boy things, who knows? I remember running around the pool, A, rule breaking, um, probably trying to do like some cool parkour in front of these girls, impress them, whatever it is. Um, And then the next thing you know, this umbrella comes out of nowhere. One of our like picnic table umbrella things or whatever from the patio swoops like right by me. I get knocked into the water and the next thing I know is I'm looking up at the water. I'm underneath the water, by the way, like gurgling, all that kind of stuff. And I see this umbrella on top of me, and I am freaking out. Like, I am panicking. I feel like I'm drowning. It feels like there's a bag of bricks weighing me down in the water. And I'm not a strong swimmer, so I am just losing my mind. All hope is lost. I'm like, this is it. I'm going to die. I live to age eight, and I'm about to drown. And next thing you know, this is a really cool part, my sister is the one who jumps into the water and rescues me. I remember her, like, jumping in. It kind of felt like a movie moment. Like, you see her hand kind of reaching out. The umbrella goes away. Next thing you know, I'm like gasping for air. It's really dramatic. But here's what happened. I get out of the water. I realize I fell in the shallow end. Like, 
I could have easily just stood up, right? So I'm embarrassed at that already. And then I'm looking around, and all these cute girls that I was hoping to, like, impress are now looking at me. Some of them are kind of laughing, which, like, rude. I almost drowned. And then some of them are, like, really shocked and startled and the whole thing. And I remember being so embarrassed. I ran inside. I went to the bathroom, changed the whole thing. And then I locked myself in my room. And I don't think I came out until, like, dinner time after everyone left. I was just so embarrassed. And I have so many, I could go endlessly about all these stories of moments when I've been in, embarrassed in my life or felt some little bit of shame ranging from that to even just like real life things like body image issues and wanting to shatter every mirror in my house because I'm so embarrassed with how I look. And here's what I've realized about me. Every time I feel that way, embarrassment on any scale, big, small, whatever it is, my first inclination when I'm looking at the mirror of all my faults, all my flaws, when I'm staring down the barrel of all of my mistakes, all of my regrets, my first impulse is to run away and hide. You see, I want to talk about shame today, but I also want to talk about the holiness of God. And simply, my goal for you today is to simply consider the relationship between the two. And so let me start by confronting reality. We all experience shame, right? Like, I don't need a show of hands. Can we all agree that we've all experienced shame on some level or embarrassment? And when we do, our gut reaction is to run away and to hide. Fight or flight, we typically choose flight. We all, to some degree, try our very best to avoid and stuff down shame. We try to mitigate what feels like it's continuous accumulation in our lives, and we do everything we can that's in our power to earn the praise, respect, acceptance, and approval of others in hopes to balance it out. We, we even try to ignore it sometimes, or we try to stuff it down altogether by numbing ourselves to it with another drink, with another guy, another girl, an outburst of anger, or anything along the, those lines, performing for, pleasing others. We just try to numb ourselves to it. So I just want to ask, how's that going? How's that going for you? You see, shame has a way of lingering. Shame has a way of hiding in plain sight, not unlike an umbrella just suddenly coming out of nowhere and knocking you into the water. And I would argue that until we see the holiness of God rightly and accurately and understand the relationship between his perfect being and our imperfect, broken, flawed lives, then we will never be free of shame. We will always be tangled up in it, weighed down by it like a brick in water trapped, enslaved, and stuck. So with all that said, let's jump into chapter 6 of 2 Samuel. Um, if you're new here, if this is your first time, what we do at Christ Chapel College is we go through books of the Bible. We want you to experience the Word of God, read it, study it, and experience the source of life and joy for yourself. So we want to teach you how to read it. So we preach through books of the Bible. Last semester we preached through 1 Samuel. We're picking up in 2 Samuel this semester. Um, and here's the thing, guys. The hope and the prayer, and what I believe will happen today, is that for some of you in this room, today is going to be a transforming day where you experience the goodness, the grace, the truth, and the forgiveness and love of a gracious God for the first time, and your life is absolutely changed. And I hope that happens. For some of you, it might just be a seed planted. It just might be a drop in the bucket, a deposit of getting to fall in love with Jesus more. And for some of us that are already walking with him, 
I hope and pray and believe it will happen that we just are in awe of how holy and big and wonderful our God is. So what I'm going to do today in hopes of that is I'm going to break down our text into three different parts. In part one, I'm going to start with calling good intentions. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000 of them. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. Okay, we're going to stop right there. Let's get some simple context established, and most importantly, some context around the ark of God. Is that the same thing as Noah's ark? No, but great question. I could see why you would think that. Um, Simply and most profoundly put, the ark of God is where the presence of God dwelled. The ark of God is equal to the presence of God. That's, that's how he chose to interact with his people at this time. Um, that's his presence. So um, there's so much more we could say about the ark, but quite frankly today, um, I'm not trying to give you a sneak peek into a seminary class. Like I said, my prayer is that you fall more in love with Jesus today. So if you have more questions and want to nerd out about the ark and theology or have any questions at all, feel free to DM us, find us afterwards. We would love to chat with you. Now, let, let me jog our memory from events way back last semester in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And if you missed that sermon, I'll give you a recap. If you weren't here, this is like the Spark Notes version. There was a, a people group known as the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Well, really all throughout scripture. And they are the longtime enemy, rivals of God's chosen people, the Israelites. And in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, they conquered and defeated the Israelites. Not once, but twice. And when they did, They stole the ark of God from them. So they took the presence of God, what's called the glory of God, from the Israelites. That was like their their token, their their winning prize. And when they did, it was said in verse 22 of chapter 4, that the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. So the very presence of God, also referred to as the glory, has left Israel because it's been captured. So um, this defeat, by the Philistines is actually what later leads Israel, God's chosen people, to demand a king, just like all the other nations had. That's what they wanted. They were like, our problems would be solved if we had a king. And so they ended up with a king named Saul, who was quickly replaced by David, which is who our character is today. So here we see King David, and he is now returning the glory, returning the ark back to Israel. So all goes to say, this is like a big redemptive moment for Israel. They're getting the ark back. It's a big deal. And David and his people, they've got all the best intentions, all the great intentions of like, this is our God. That's his ark. That's where his presence dwells. Let's go get it back. Let's bring it back to our people and our land. This is a good thing to desire, and we're going to go do it. And so they do. Um, Every best intention seems to be carried through. The ark is returned, except for, and this is what you don't see in this text, There are very clear and specific instructions on how the Ark of God is to be treated. You see, back in Exodus chapter 25, Numbers chapter 4 um, are the most specific ones, but we see clear instructions regarding the Ark. Um, Things like the Ark is to be carried by two poles, um, specifically carried by priests, and 
aside from that, it was never to be touched. And if you touched it, you would die. You see, that was because, again, the ark resembled the presence of God. And God, which we'll talk more about later, is perfectly holy. And we are unholy, sinful people. And just like oil and water cannot go together, God's holiness and our unholiness cannot go together. So if someone, a human, was to touch the ark, they would drop dead because he is that perfect and that holy. Um, It would result in disaster. So with all that said, what do you notice in these first four verses that we just read? The ark is supposed to be carried, and it's not carried here. We see it mentioned twice that it's put on a new cart, like a little little red wagon, right? Like they're driving it along. They're not carrying it. That's rule broken number one. Then Uzzah and Ahio, the two brothers, sons of Abinadab, they were not designated to actually handle um, and touch the ark of God. Um, only priests could do that. And even if they were priests, it's very clear that they were not um, designated to be able to do that. So although they had the very best intention, and no doubt they loved the Lord, and no doubt they wanted to serve the Lord, and no doubt they thought they were doing everything right with their best intentions, but they cut corners. They knew well and good that they were supposed to carry the ark, that it was supposed to be handled by specific people, and they ignored that because they thought, let's just get this thing back to our people and our land. So they cut corners, which foreshadows what I'm about to call part two, the disaster. Pick up in verse five. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. I feel like we should bring that back for worship. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. The oxen carrying the ark tripped and fell, so Uzzah reaches out to to level it out. And look at what happens in verse 7. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down right there because of his error, and Uzzah died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me. So David was not willing to take the ark into the city of David, but instead he took it aside to the house of Obed-Eben the Gittite. Now reading this, a lot of weird names for sure, but reading this, you get the gist, should make your jaw drop, right? Here's the ark. It's being carried by an oxen. Again, it's the presence of God. It should be held reverently. It's about to fall. So Uzzah is like, I should catch it. And he catches it, puts his hand on it. But again, he's unholy. God is perfectly holy, and God said, you're not supposed to touch the ark, and he struck dead right there. It should be a jaw-dropping moment. It's confusing. Um, At first glance, it seems like the Lord just flippantly strikes down this innocent man. It's shocking, and it was for David. You see, Uzzah's death struck David to his core, and who can blame him, right? Uh, it, It feels deeply personal to him. You see, Uzzah, first of all, was likely his nephew, Uzzah is the son of Abinadab. Abinadab, just more quick context, was another son of Jesse and therefore probably a brother of David, making Uzzah his nephew. So it felt deeply personal. Regardless, there was a close personal relationship between them. And even if there wasn't, it's a jaw-dropping moment. This man is trying to hold the ark up and he's struck down dead because the Lord said, you're in error, right? You should not be touching this. It's a jaw-dropping, confusing moment. And David starts asking questions to himself, like how could a good God do this? 
how could the God that we have been faithfully following and serving seemingly repay us like this? We just got his presence back. We brought you back to your people. Why would you kill this man so innocently when he was trying to hold you up? And how many of you guys in this room ask similar questions? How many of us has, have asked ourselves, God, I have done so much for you. I've done nothing but follow you. I've been nothing but faithful and obedient. Why would you let this happen? How? How could you do this? It says David is angry, and he is fuming, and he's confused, and why? Why would God do this? Why would he strike down what seems to be an innocent man in this situation? Simply put, for now, God's work, he makes clear, is to be done in his way. God's work is made to be done in God's way. He sets the conditions. He establishes the set of rules. If any of you joined the discipleship project over the past couple semesters, that is something that Amy reminds us of often. God is the initiator. God is the one who sets conditions. God is the one who establishes. He made specific rules. He says, this is the way how you should walk. This is the way how you should live. These are the ways that you interact with me, not how you think you should, how I say you should. And if you don't do those, then you're not following his commands. God, put another way, doesn't ask for our best intentions. He doesn't ask for our best intentions. He commands our full obedience. God's work must be done God's way. And remember, Uzzah wasn't designated to touch the ark in the first place. Likely wasn't even designated to even carry it, which he transported incorrectly to begin with. And even though he had every best intention to care for the ark, even though as it was falling, he had no doubt in his mind, I love the Lord, I want to serve him the whole thing, it, his best intentions didn't cut it. His unholiness could not come into contact with the holiness of God. Again, God's work must be done God's way. Now, I understand that at this point, you're probably looking at me or thinking, this is confusing, maybe even slightly frustrating, and it probably brings up a ton of questions, but stick with me. Let's go to part three, which I'm titling The Rejoicing. Pick up in verse 11. And the ark of the Lord that David just sent away remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told to King David, look, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. Now let me stop right there. Here's an observation that I made that I just want to share with you from those verses. Um, and it's this, where the Lord goes, it looks like blessing follows. Where the Lord goes, blessing follows. David sent the ark, the presence of God away to Obed-Edom, just kind of a random place, it seems like. And there the Lord blesses that place and those people. Where the Lord goes, blessing follows. Pick up in the rest of that verse. So David, he went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Wow, he went from anger to rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Basically, he's just worshiping. That's how they worshiped then through sacrifices. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and he was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Okay, here's what just happened. No doubt, it's obvious, David shifts from anger and frustration to joy and celebration. He strips himself, we see, of his, he's a king. He strips himself of kingly clothes, 
of like the nice robe, the colorful things, the medals, everything that signified him as a king, he takes it all off and puts on what's called a linen ephod, which is what priests wore. And let me tell you, it's not much and it probably wasn't pretty. It was like a kind of like a rag is how I imagine it. And so in the eyes of many, including in the eyes of his own wife that we see later uh, in the rest of this chapter, it's an undignifying act, right? People are saying, you're a king. You should not be dancing like that. You should not be wearing that, first of all, let alone dancing in it. That's promiscuous and weird and undignified. Like, that is not what kings do. And it's an undignifying act, which they're not wrong. You see, it is a total act of humility on David's part. Because what he does taking off all of his adornments, all of the things that signified him as a king is this total act of humility, stripping himself of all the indicators of his success, his accomplishments, and his standing with people, all the things that brought him praise and affirmation and reward, he gets rid of, and it's in that place, this unadornment, and in that posture of humility, that he is able to rightly worship the Lord. You see, David came to grips with the reality that the Lord, the God of the universe, is beyond human comprehension, evaluation, or control. He's just far too magnificent and far too wonderful. And his blessing, David is realizing, is not contingent on what you do for him. His blessing is contingent only on his own holiness simply on who he is. And David, um, he wrote a lot of the Psalms, which is a whole book in the Bible. And one of them is Psalm 139, which you should all go read. It's pretty classic for a lot of reasons. And in Psalm 139, after being in awe and articulating how overwhelmed David is with, uh, with the presence of God and how wonderful his works are, he says in verse six, your works, the knowledge of God is far too wonderful for me. Who can understand it? Who can comprehend it? It's just too big. He finally sees God rightly and understands, and that's what allows him to switch from anger to rejoicing. Now, let's shift and spend the rest of our time, in light of all that, talking about how how all of this applies to you and to me. What's the relationship between the wonderful holiness of God and our shame in everyday life? Let me start with some applications from the text that I think will help us get there. Um, And the first one that we see is we see you have to honor the holiness of God, right? Very important, and I think it starts there. But what does that look like? What does it look like to honor the holiness of God? Well, I think kind of two parts. You've got to see him rightly, and you've got to see yourself rightly, right? You have to see and know God's character. You have to know who he is. You see, there is so much that we learn about God's character in these pages, in scripture, in his word. Um, But let me give you a quick little spark notes. Here's some things that you see. There's only one true God, and he is alive, and he is active, and he is infinite in being. And he is good, he is gracious, he is steadfast, and he is faithful, and he is holy, meaning he's the most pure spirit and the most perfect person. And what do I mean by holy? That's what I mean. The purest form of something, the most perfect something can get. That is God. He is holy. Um, He's given all of these attributes, Amy was just reminding me, and all of them are precursed with the word holy. 
He's holy in love. He's perfectly loving. He's perfectly good. He's perfectly gracious. He's love in its purest form. He's justice in its purest form. He's all the things. That is what his holiness looks like and means. Isaiah 6 verse 3 says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It says it three times. And here's what I think is fascinating. That is the only place in scripture where God's character and his attribute is given this threefold repeated kind of formula. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And it's repeated, right? It's like a literary device to drill into the fact that God isn't just a little bit holy. He's not even just holy. He is like really, really, really holy right? Like if I came up to you, I just left a basketball game, right? And if I came up back to you and I was like, guys, I just saw the most massive, massive, massive guy I've ever seen. You guys would be like, okay, like calm down. And then you'd, it, you'd be clear that I just probably saw not just some average big tall basketball player, but probably the most ginormous man I've ever seen in my life, right? Like he was massive, massive, absolutely massive, right? Repeating it three times. It is the same thing. He's holy, He is holy. He is holy. You see, it's repeated three times, I believe, to stretch the boundaries of our imagination, right? Of what we think is holy, he is so greater and so far more holy than that. And in the words of a writer and pastor named Paul David Tripp, he says, whatever it means for God to be holy, you need to know that he is in an entirely different category of holiness, He is much holier than you ever thought holiness could be. It is meant to stretch the boundaries of your imagination beyond your comprehension. He is holy beyond beyond all of that. So you have to understand that. You have to understand who he is, perfectly holy, perfectly pure, and you have to also understand who you are. You've got to see yourself rightly. And you, hate to break it to you, are unholy. You're sinful. You see, Romans 3, verse 10 through 12 says, no one is holy, not a single one of us, not you, not me. Our sin has distanced us from a perfect and holy God, and we are now in a fallen, imperfect, broken state where no one is capable of doing good, not any single one of us. We are completely corrupt. And scripture reminds us over and over again that we are actually dead in our sin absolutely lifeless. And again, just like oil and water can't go together, nor can a sinful person, an unholy person, be together with a holy and perfect God. So here's my question. Each of us is entirely, if that's the case, dependent on God for any amount of life, any amount of holiness that might reside in us. So the question is, do you see yourself rightly? Do you have the humility to see yourself rightly and know that you have nothing good to offer apart from God, that there is no life, no real authentic living apart from him and his holiness. And like David, are you willing to strip yourself of the facade of all the lies, all the illusions, unadorn yourself from your ego, your pride, your accomplishments, successes, all the things that get you in your head, believing that you're the main character and a really good one at that? Are you willing to unadorn yourself of all of those things? Now, we're dead and without life, that would be really depressing, right? But there's hope. Scripture tells us that the word, 
God's word is full of life. And if that's the case, then we've got to know what his word says. We have to know what his word commands, right? If we are to honor his holiness and we want to know what holiness looks like and what it looks like to live holy lives, we've got to be in this. God's word tells us everything we need to know about what it looks like to be holy. It tells us how God is holy, all those things, how to reflect him. It tells us what holy living looks like, what is holy and what isn't. And we can't know the difference if we're not in his word regularly and trying to understand those things and then live it out. Some other things that I want to put in front of you is John chapter 1 verse 14 says that the word, this word became flesh to dwell among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father full of grace and truth. And then John later in chapter 17 verse 3 says, and this is eternal life. If you're dead, you need life. And if you want eternal life, then this is it, that they know you, Jesus Christ, the one whom I have sent. And so if we want life, if we, we want to know what it looks like to live holy lives, we must look to Jesus. We must mirror and mimic the way of Jesus. And here's what Jesus' main command was. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, it says, Jesus tells his disciples that if anyone is to come after me, then they must take up their cross, deny themselves, and follow me. That's his command. He says, if you lose your life for my sake and you follow me, you deny yourself, you're going to find eternal life. And it's good. And the God of the universe is saying, hey, go follow Jesus. Go follow him. Promise me. I, 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 I promise you, you're going to love him. He's going to introduce you to life and life to the full. And he, Jesus says, okay, do that. I will. But you've got to deny yourself and follow me. That's the command. And here's the hardest part about honoring God's holiness. The hardest part is not just simply knowing that, it's following through with that, right? Following through is always the hardest part. You see, knowledge is not the end goal. You can quote that scripture, you can know that what God says, you can read his word, but knowledge is not the end goal. Information is not the same thing as transformation. We have to follow Jesus day in and day out, moment by moment, with every thought, every action, everything. So what does that look like? How do we do that? How does it, um, what does it look like to get an understanding of the holiness of God and, and let that form all of the important areas of your life, like your friendships, your education, your leisure time, your entertainment, your sexuality, your relationships? What does it look like to let the holiness of God form those areas, your church life even? What does it mean to let an understanding of his holiness influence your thoughts, your desires, your words, the way you make decisions? I would argue that it's all about setting your mind on Jesus and choosing the way of Jesus constantly. First Peter in uh, chapter one says this. It says, therefore, prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, be holy, you shall be holy for I am holy. And then Galatians 6 is like a formative verse in my life that I always go back to and it says this, for the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. We're sinful, we're unholy, only capable of corruption. And if we keep feeding our sin, that's all we're ever gonna get is what that's saying. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Life and eternal life, quick theology that I'll always harp on, 
is not just a quantity of life thing. It's not just living forever. It's also a quality of life that you can experience here and now, and it is good. And that verse finishes, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up, if we follow through, and so to the Spirit. Set your mind on Jesus. Choose him always. Do not grow weary. Keep following through, pursuing holiness, pursuing Jesus, and experience eternal life here and now and forever. And then as you go, as you do, just like David, rejoice and celebrate in God's blessing. Right? That's a crucial part of it. That's what it looks like, uh, a part of what honoring God's holiness looks like. Um, rejoice and celebrate, just like David did. And this is the ultimate blessing. And if you only hear one thing from me, if you've been sleeping and you're waking up now, just wake up for like 20 more seconds, and this is the one thing that I want you to hear. The ultimate blessing of God is this. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it is the true and good news that the God of the universe made you to be in a relationship with him. But then sin entered the picture, and just like oil and water, we were no longer together. But out of his great love with which he loved you. He saw that you were very far off. He saw that you were broken and sinful and flawed and destined and doomed for death and destruction, and yet he sent his own son, Jesus, while you were still a sinner, to die in your place. And then Jesus walked out of the grave three days later, offering us life and life to the full, and let me tell you that that is just the beginning. Jesus' resurrection is just the beginning of the most beautiful life of a future that the Lord promises to all of those who put their trust in him. And it is good, and it is the best thing in this world, and that is something to rejoice in. Psalm 107, verse 2 is one of my favorites, and it says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let the redeemed of the Lord celebrate. Let the redeemed of the Lord say that they've been redeemed. Rejoicing and celebrating is a part of honoring God. I've been reconciled to him. I'm going to rejoice in that. I'm going to have joy in my salvation. And here's what all that leads to. Here's what all that leads to. It leads to shameless living. You see, that's the other way that we honor the holiness of God. Living unashamed lives, seeing God rightly as absolutely holy and perfect and pure and good and beautiful and desirable and then accepting ourselves, yourself, as fallen and broken and imperfect and sinful, even on your very best day, and recognizing that even on your, your very worst day, and despite your worst self, Christ died for you. He died for you so that you could be redeemed and restored and reconciled to God, and that God wouldn't no longer see your unholiness, but he would see the holiness of his Son in your place. And that is what leads to freedom freedom from shame, freedom from our insecurities, freedom knowing that we are called beloved in the eyes of a loving father and that our true identity is found in him, all of that leads to freedom. So here's my invitation to you to close out. My invitation is simply to submit your anxieties, your insecurities, your shame, all of those things to a good and gracious father who comforts and provides. Submit all of your thoughts, your hopes, your expectations, your dreams, your ego, your fear of rejection, all those things to a good God who promises so much more and so much better than you could ever imagine. He promises life and life abundant. John 10, 10. That's what Jesus came to give, and we quote it a lot here. And because we do, I want to make sure we understand what that means. It's a little theology word study nerding out for you. That word abundant doesn't just mean a lot. 
that word abundant in scripture means like there is so much that I don't know what to do with it. Like I can't keep, like I don't know how to hold it. I don't know what to do with it. Like it is overflowing from me. That is the picture of abundance. It's not just like my cup is full. No, it's like my cup is overflowing. I have so much life that I don't even know what to do with it. It's just coming out of me. Love and peace and joy are just coming out of me because I have so much because I have the spirit of God in me. That is what life and life abundant looks like. Talk about joyful, shameless living, an overflow of life and love from the God of the universe. And remember, let me just end here. The only way to get that is by honoring the holiness of God. And God doesn't just ask for your best intentions. He commands your full obedience. That is what leads to that kind of shameless living. And your full obedience leads to freedom. Your full obedience leads to life abundant and overflow of life. Full obedience leads you into eternal life, the quality of life that you can't fully imagine on this side of eternity, but that you can taste and see and experience here and now and catch glimpses of. A life without shame, a life knowing was, uh, knowing your sin was paid for by a man on a cross named Jesus through his death in your place. A life knowing that you were so valuable to the God of the universe that he said you were worth dying for. Despite your flaws, despite your sin, despite your unholiness, he saw that you were drowning in all of it, doomed to die. You know what he did? He jumped into the water and rescued you. And he pulls you out. And knowing that, that truth is what sets you free. Let me pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for your goodness um, and just the simple yet profound fact that you have made a way for us to know you through your son, Jesus. Um, and that you love us despite our, um, our ego, our insecurities, all those things, Lord. Um, Father, would we just sit and stand in awe of you in this moment, and even as we go back into worship, would our prayer be, Lord, we want more of you. We want to know you better. We want to see you better. We want to experience your love, your truth, your grace, your forgiveness. Father, change us um, by your grace, Lord. Would we not just walk out of these doors after worship is done, just living our lives just the same way we did yesterday and the weeks before, Lord, but would we seek um, and strive to honor you? Um, Father, would we get in your word and know what you ask of us? Um, Father, would we experience what you promise to give us um, as we follow your son, Jesus? Father, we need you to do that. We need your spirit to fuel that. Um, and so we ask all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.